0: How's about now? Test, test, test. Yeah? Come on. That's why we keep in around. The only reason we keep in around. Um how's everyone doing? There we go. Oh, it doesn't doesn't matter too much, man. Yeah, all good. There we go. Okay, so we have been doing a journey Is that a bit funny? Um we've been doing a journey through Romans. Um if you haven't been here for it, I would encourage you to listen back. Um it luckily is recorded. Um uh yeah, and it's been it's been very rewarding. Um it's also been incredibly challenging. If you've been uh, part of the team trying to preach the book, um it is uh, an incredibly challenging book. Um but anyway, so we've we've been oh, thank you, Carl. Come on, Carl, what a legend. Come on. Um so we, we are currently at Romans 11. We've been uh, journeying through Romans 1 to 8 is uh, kind of a journey through salvation uh, by faith, not by works. I'm going to have to like look around the Christmas tree to you guys. Um, uh, just pretend you can see me. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, does it bother you guys? I'll just pop in and out. I'll be like a decoration. Um, okay. Uh, so we've been, the first eight chapters, then we dive into uh, probably the most confusing portion of Scripture for me, uh, 9 through 11. Um, most theolog- uh, theologians are kind of define a lot of these points, and so it becomes quite challenging to preach uh, something very clear. What what we always attempt to do when whenever you're looking at Scripture, even when you're reading it for yourself, you've got to... Ask the question not, what does this mean to me? Because scripture is applicable to you, but it means something clear. I think in, in uh, our society, our, our hyper-individualistic society, we want something to be for us, but actually this has a context, this has a meaning. It's not our, our own truth, this is a truth. It teaches us something and then we apply it to ourselves. And so we've got, got to be careful about Uh, trying to read our own opinions into Scripture. We've got to look at what Scripture says and then let that apply to us and let that speak to us. Um, So there's some challenging portions here. Romans 9 was about the sovereignty of God, this bigger picture of God. Uh, We move into... Romans 10, which one of the things I love, so Romans, like we've discussed, was was never like a book with all these chapters, it was just a letter that ran straight through, and so Romans 9 comes with this picture of God's sovereign choice of his people, and then Romans 10, literally even the tail end of Romans 9 and going into Romans 10 paints this picture of human responsibility. And they're just right next to each other. We've got a little division, but actually there's no real division. And there's this bigger picture of God. When, we, when we're when we forced to, to not just pick our favorite things, we start to see aspects of God that seem to contradict each other or, or that we have to try and hold in tension. We can't understand how God can have a sovereign choice over our lives, and yet in the next chapter it's speaking about our choice and how Israel could reject its Messiah. Uh, And those two can be the same. Um, And so I I love that about it, but it's also incredibly confusing. Um, And so we come into Romans 11, um, which is speaking largely about Israel. And uh, my wife can testify to the fact that I have... um, labored or uh, I don't know I've, I've just really wrestled with this I like I just don't really um, yeah it's been hard work uh, there's, there's certain passages where you just see them and you're like oh this is so good I know where this is going and I know what to do and with this I've just really wrestled to say okay this is what God's speaking but how is that applicable to us today? How is that applicable to us as a church? How does this both edify the church, draw in the lost and the lonely, and, and how does it like reach into that space? Um, and so I'm going to do my best job uh, from what I feel God is speaking into that. But before we go into that, if we could have the first picture up. Um, so, I know, right? Some some of you might be wondering who that stud is, um, who is who is straining to grow a full beard. Um it was. It was in my student years. My beard wasn't linking up. I looked. I looked far less tired. Um, I had more hair. I didn't look like I was carrying our third child like I do now sometimes. Um, but I was youthful. That is. That is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, that is the Drakensberg in South Africa. That is like a home away from home for me. That's. That's about forty-five minutes from my home. Um, just this. This place where you can just get away, and you can uh, sometimes when you get into the bigness, it, it just teaches you a lesson of your smallness, uh, and that's that's just like a tiny portion of God's creation in in one little area. But you just climb up these mountains. So this this mountain here, I'll show show you another picture later. But this one is three thousand meters, uh, and you you right next to another one called Champagne Castle, which is three thousand four hundred meters high and you standing up against that that doesn't sound massive but, but when you like four hundred meters short of this huge it's just like straight up rock um you get a, a perspective on yourself of how small you are. Um but if you go to the next picture so this is I'm gonna quickly I don't know if it's I'll try switch it off if it starts to do stuff. Um so that's that champagne over here. You guys can't. I wanted a laser. I wanted it to be cool enough to have a laser, but I'm not that cool. I'll come, come show you there. But that flat rock over there, that champagne castle, and that's the tiny little rock where I was up over there. Um, and this is where you begin. Um, it's one of my favorite things about it uh, is is that you can do it in one day. Um, it's hard, hard going, and you have to be wake up in the morning, get going, you can get up to the top, and you can come back. And it's, it's so beautiful, it's so challenging, it's so lovely. Um, but there's a lot of other places along that route. Um, so we've, like I said, I probably first went up, not to the top of this mountain, but went up this uh, kind of way when I was about four. My parents would just drag me along, and I used to love it, just like crawl, crawling up the mountain. Um, and there's load, loads of different spots. So one of my favorite spots, I feel bad for everyone on that side. I will I will come show you. Oh, there we go, the mouse, the magic mouse. Does it show on that screen also? Yeah. Uh, come on, follow the mouse. So this little thing over here, um, see, see mouse, that's called the sphinx. Um, and it does look like the sphinx when you're looking at it from the side. It's kind of just popping out. Um and that's a really, really special place. We used to go as uh, kids. We would climb up on this rock. Um, it's probably about like a one and a half hour hike. Um, but it's really special. You can go, go just below that. It's a place called Crystal Falls, which is uh, just this waterfall. And then there's this freezing cold pool of water that's just still. And you can just go swim in it so as kids. We would just love to swim in it. Um, further up, uh, just as you get to the top of the Littleberg, this is... So this is Big Berg over there, um, all of those mountains. And then this top over here, there we go, smashing it, that's Little Berg. And so at the top of Little Berg, you would have Breakfast Stream, you would have Blind Man's Corner, all very cool names, just places that we would kind of hike to. Um, one of the places that's super special to me um, would be, what's, what's the next picture? I actually don't know. Um, but you can go to it, you can jump, it's suspense. Da-dum. Ah, how cool is this? So this is on top of the Sphinx with a few of my friends. So that's that's when you're up there. You can still see all the way up in the top corner, right, 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 up, 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 right. up over here. There we go, so that's where we're going. It's still quite a far way off from there, um, but it's it's so like it's so epic being up there. So that's a special place for me. If you go to the next one, um, is one of the earliest stops, that's called uh, Robin Hood Forest, and that's really special to me, that's where I proposed to Beth, and um, I mean if we're talking about the mystery of God, first one would probably be, why did Chloe say yes, you know what I mean, like, <laughs> I know right, it's, God, God's really patient, he's kind, he's so good, the same truth is true about me, Except that Beth probably, she didn't really say yes. I think the first thing she said was like, my nose. Which has no in it, which is really confusing for someone when you propose. And she's like, my nose. Oh, um, uh, I think it was just watering. It was really confusing. I was confused. I didn't know if it was a yes or not. Um, but, but that's an incredibly special place for me. And, and I go through all of this um, mainly just to say, you can, you can take, take it off the screen there. Um, unless you guys want to keep keep staring at me, humbling myself, uh, I was gonna get one of me on my knee, and I was like, no, let's not go there. Um, but uh, basically, is we we've been going through the book of Romans, and I feel like Paul's taking us on a journey um, to these these really high heights, um, and there's temptations all the way through to stop at. At familiar places, to stop at a point, we, we all have things that we're passionate about, we all have things that, that we uh, have a specific longing for, and there's all these things, or, or maybe it's not something you're specifically longing for, but we get to p- portions of Scripture that we have questions with, and, and what I want to say today, because we are going into a challenging passage, or, or there are areas that are confusing, I feel like Paul... There's times where we stop. There's times where I stop at Robin Hood Forest and it's an incredibly special moment for me. There's times where I stop at the Sphinx. But when I'm going up on top of Starcorn, uh, I've got to be going somewhere. There's no time for, for stopping around. I can look at things, but I think sometimes in our walk with God, we we go so far and then we get to a hurdle or we get to a question and we lose sight of the bigger bigger picture. We just come to something that's familiar we come to something that we know well. We come to something that we're passionate about and we just stick there and we lose sight of of where God's actually taking us. And so I want to say as we, we're going through here, I'm going to try, like I said, be as authentic to this passage as possible, preach it, but I want to I not stop uh, and just kind of look down. I want to constantly be calling us to a picture of where we're going. There's, there's times when um, you're on this hike. Actually, I didn't put the picture in, but there's times where you're going, once you get on top of the Berg, you get into the steep climb where, where it's really hard work. And there's some climbs where you just completely, all you can see in front of you is just a, you lose sight completely of where you're going. And you've just got to go where you 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 have to hold that picture in your mind of where you're going you know the place that you're going to you just trust that the path is going there and you keep walking you lose sight of all the stuff and so um that's that's the challenge for today we're going to going to jump straight into it but I I want us to constantly hold before us the picture of where Paul's taking us um and, and I'll I'll Show a bit more of that closer to the end, um, but let's jump in. So it says, I "Ask then, did God reject His people?" This is Romans 11, verse one. So that sounds like a, a a confusing question. Why would He be asking that? Well, if you understand Romans nine, He's just been speaking about the sovereign choice of God. The first question that He asked in Romans nine was, "Has God's word failed?" And so Paul goes on to show, no, God's word hasn't failed. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all the people that, that we think of as the ethnic group of Israel are the people of the promise. He goes on to explain that, uh, like we briefly discussed in Romans 9. And so he's saying there's the sovereign choice of God um, that seems to, to have shifted from the, the Jews to the Gentiles. Um, and then you've got uh, Romans 10, which ends on quite a sober sober passage speaking about kind of how um, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how did Israel not hear? How have the Jews not heard? And it goes on to speak about how they've rejected the Messiah. Not, not every single one of them, but as a bulk people, they seem to have turned away. And so the natural question to that is, so is God... Finished? has he has he just rejected this people? Has he moved on to a new people um, and so his answer to that is by no means I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin so case case one, I haven't rejected the Jews. why? because Paul himself, who's preaching or writing this letter, is a Jew, okay then he moves on on to the the second case he says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There we go. It's going down. Take down Christmas. Yes. There we go. I don't know, right? Come on, let's let's not go too far into this. Um but but yes, I approve. Um uh, <laughs> anyway, oh, Tim, break it down. That's it. Come on, thank you. It's nice to see you guys. I feel connected again. Um Okay. Um so I've reserved for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this present time there's a remnant. This is his principle chosen. By grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, would no longer be grace. And so, second second case is about the prophet Elijah. If you don't know the story, he's just uh, like roused all four hundred prophets for Baal, um, and and he's pretty much staged this contest, saying like, okay, who's the real God? Is it the God of Israel? Was it Baal, whom most of, of you have abandoned to go and serve now? And so then he puts out these two sacrifices and he gives them a chance to dance around and, and try and get this uh, sacrifice to light for, for God to light it and doesn't light. And then he goes and prays, and fire just descends and burns up the sacrifice. And so from this great place of victory, um, he then Jezebel threatens to kill him and he runs off and goes and hides in a cave. And God pretty much says, What are you doing here? Um and so he says, I'm the only one left. Can't you see? Like they've killed everyone else. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Um and God says, No, I, I've reserved for myself seven thousand. There's always been a remnant of people. You you make too much of, of yourself, don't you know? I'm the sovereign God who chooses. It's it's not there are seven thousand people who Who have not bowed any no, I have reserved for myself seven thousand, and so he says, so today there's a remnant, so he 's making the case for the fact that there's still an Israelite remnant when you think of um, when the gospel first went out, it was first preached to Jews, and there were people that believed, and then it went out to Gentiles um, from then so uh, that is his case for that, um, and he lands it by by like I said, by addressing the heart. So he says there's a remnant that's been chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, then it's not by works, because those two can't exist. Uh, as, as a basis for, for God's salvation, grace uh, and works are, are opposed to each other. When you, when you look at um, faith and works and, and how our life is outworked, you, uh, then then we get into kind of different different arguments if you're uh, reading about that in the Bible. But as a basis for our acceptance of salvation, as a basis for how God accepts us, um, He accepts us by grace. We are chosen by grace, not by our works. Um, and then He goes into uh, two kind of previous uh, passages from the Old Testament. He quotes them. He says, um, What then? What? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that that they could not see, and ears so they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. So those are our really challenging. He's not he's just quoting from the old testament, but he's pointing towards this hardness that that has come. And that's that is a, a very challenging principle. There's lots of explanations for that. And I think that's stuff that we can discuss. I honestly believe probably the healthiest discussion around this, although I would be uh I would be surprised if you came to a final answer because this is some of the mystery of God. But the healthiest place for discussion like this is in life groups or in just just meeting up with people. But definitely there's, there's basic principles here. When you look at how God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, when you actually look earlier in the scripture, it says that he hardened his heart and then there's a hardening from God. And so we need to to... Look at the scriptures and try and interpret this. But basically what he's saying is there's a hardness that has come over Israel that has caused them to reject their Messiah. Um, and, and David, the second uh, quote that he makes from David um, is may their table become a snare and a trap. That, that it's a picture of people sitting in their comfort at their feast. And they don't realize that their, actual, their whole sense of safety and where they are is the thing that's going to trip them up. Their, their whole sense of security and feeling like they're so safe, um, they're so safe in in something that's that's not God. We can we can become so um, certain of ourselves. We can become so uh, secure in our own little world. The West is uh, probably the worst at this. We we become so content in our health systems. We become so content in our wealth. We become so content in all the things around us. And the challenge would be maybe when when we find in our contentment and all these things we can easily miss the messiah we we can easily some some of the uh like poorer nations will will far more easily recognize our desperate need um for a savior than than a place like this but um so he he carries on those those are i wouldn't wouldn't ignore those passages but i, I would say those those are things to to wrestle with um, but he goes on to the, the second question now, and he says, uh, in Romans 11, verse 11, he says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? So, so are they rejected? No, God's reserved a remnant. Well, what about these others? What about these other people that, that seem to have rejected their Messiah, that have, have this hardening over them? Are they gone forever? And so his argument, he says, is um, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Um, this is this is a mysterious uh, thing. He actually runs through this point a few few times. But what he says is, if God's used the rejection of... Of Israel to open up a door to to the bulk of us here that aren't Jewish, um, then then what will he do with their homecoming when they when they return when this nation kind of comes back? Um, and he speaks a little bit more about that later. But I, I think of the passage. So Romans eight verse twenty eight says, uh, "For God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes." I love the 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 depth of something like this that's so far beyond my comprehension. If you think about how God's done this, He he opens up a door for those that are outsiders through the rejection. So the people have rejected Him and He takes the scenario and He twists it. He uses it so that He can open up a door to the outsiders. And He takes the coming in of the outsiders and He uses that to try to draw the people that have just rejected Him to an envy, so that they would come back to him. There's this this mystery of the way that God works. That He's able to take every scenario. He's able to take uh, people's rejection, and He's able to use that. He's able to use. If you look through through the scriptures, He's able to use foreign kings to, to uh, as like a tool for His service. He's able to use the the people coming in from from the outside to try and draw His own people back to Him. There's there's a mystery, but it's it's a beautiful mystery, and I think. Um, Sometimes we must look at that and see how how much higher his thoughts are than ours. How how much deeper. I don't don't fully understand all this stuff, but but how incredible his wisdom that he would be able to use all things for his purposes for those who are, are love who love him and are called to according to his purpose. Um, and so he he carries on. He actually addresses. Uh, he shifts his attention towards the Gentiles, uh, and basically what what he says is um, you 've been grafted in these these people from the outside so when he speaks about grafting branches in and branches being cut off, so um, in kind of uh, ancient times, or probably in, in these times when when an olive tree had lost its vigor, when it wasn 't producing fruit. Uh, they would actually try and bring life to an old olive tree by trimming off the branches that weren't producing and, and grafting in new branches and would have an effect of reinvigorating, would bring life back to it. Um, but what he says here is he, he, he challenges their thinking because he says, okay, so you've been grafted in and some of these branches, not, not people, but, but groups of people have been pulled out. And he says, but don't be arrogant. Because you're not, you as a branch have been grafted in. The only way a branch can take in a graft is because there's nutrients coming from its root. The branch doesn't carry nutrients with it. It has, has some nutrients in it already from the root that it was being fed by. But, but once that runs out, it can't produce more. It can't feed the root. It can't make that tree come to life. It can only take onto the tree and receive the life that comes from it. And so he says, Be wary of being arrogant. Be wary of um, thinking that you're the ones that are bringing all this life, that you're the ones bringing all this fruit. You're just a recipient um, of, of all the nutrients that are coming up. Um, and I think that's, that is a challenge uh, to us with, with how we do. I, I love the, the word that he says. Let me find the verse for you specifically. Um, in verse 20, the second half, he says, Do not be arrogant. But be afraid. That's that's a uh, be afraid. There's there's a holy fear of God. There's a, a reverence and an awe um, that that does something in us that breaks down our our uh, kind of capacity for pride. When when God comes and shows us that that we're not the ones bringing all this goodness, He's the one that's bringing the goodness. It has an effect of humbling us, um, and so He carries on. He, he um, says in verse twenty-two, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fall, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. So he says, these people have been cut off, but they can be grafted back in. He actually says, how much easier would it be for God to graft in a branch that's actually from this tree than to graft in a wild branch? Um, so he he speaks about this, but I love how he he speaks about consider both the sternness and the kindness. Consider this, this, um, consider the judgment, consider the weightiness of God, consider his wrath uh, or wrath. I say wrath because I'm South African, but I could be weird. Um, I am weird to be fair, um, but consider these, weigh weigh these both up. Ma- marry these two together, the kindness of God and his sternness. Because if we sway too much, if we put all our weight on one thing, we, we end up leaning to that side. We we not um we don't see the fullness of God when we, we put all our weight into one of those. We have to hold in balance his kindness and his sternness. Um and so it carries on. Verse twenty twenty-five is where he Changes his uh, tack a little bit again. And he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Okay. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I, when I take away their sins. And so he speaks about, so this this is one of the statements where there are quite varied views on what he's actually saying. Probably the three predominant views of all Israel will be saved is, is either all of the Jewish people that had been chosen through every single generation, when that number reaches its fullness then all Israel will be saved. So he's speaking about the chosen Israel. Or the second would be the the new Israel. So how uh, in verse 9 where he says not all Israel is Israel, he's speaking about not all ethnic Israel is spiritual Israel. Um, And the third and probably the most prevailing uh, view with theologians would be actually he's speaking about all Israel as in the, the nation, not all in the sense of every single person but he 's saying that there's going to be this mass uh, return of Jewish people back to their messiah um, and and i don 't think any of those are inconsistent with with the rest of scripture. I do think probably the most plain reading of this would be the last one that that we will see a day when all israel the the nation will come to a revival they 'll recognize their messiah but what' What we need to do with a passage like this is say there's an element of mystery. There's, a, there's an element I don't understand. What's clear in this passage is God has a heart for his people. He, he says later here, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. He's saying, as far as this gospel has come, they have been Fiercely persecuting when you look at paul he's he's making this earnest case through through chapters nineteen and eleven, just plain he he's saying his heart is is in deep anguish for for his people yet he they they the exact people that are trying to kill him now can you recognize this deep love in his heart for the people its It's because God has a deep love in his heart for these people they may be uh, fiercely opposing the gospel but we are the rich benefactors of all the history we we this this word that's been so well preserved this is that it's part of our history it's part of who we are and so there's this deep passion in his heart we can't deny that no matter what view you take on that we have to have a passion that God would come and move in his people and so i think there's a healthy level of, of just love and, and just passion to see that God would restore them. I think, um, so there is a theology called two-track theology, which is where um, people in their attempt to, to try not push away Jewish people have made up, uh, just to be honest, heresy that, that Uh, There's two ways that we're going to get to God. And so the Jewish people can still follow their way. They can still go according to the Jewish way and they'll get to God. But God's opened up a new way for us and we can go that way. And that's just, if that were true, why did Jesus even come? Honestly, when we start to open up doors like that because we want to make peace between people, we must recognize that we compromise in truth. Uh, and when we compromise a truth like that, there's just so much danger that we must recognize what we do when we try and, and soften a blow. The the most loving thing we can do is preach the truth, yeah. yeah? And, and so we we must be careful to to not, in our love for them, try and soften a blow. The way that the the Bible, Paul actually says here, he says he speaks about it a few times. He says that I'm I'm ministering to your Gentiles. This is what I'm called to, but my Deepest hope is that my own people would be so envious. The the calling on us, uh, there's um, in a commentary on this, he says, just as regrettable as it is that Israel has turned from its Messiah, we should be, it's so regrettable that we have not made them envious. That we by our lives, by by the way we've received this covenant, by the way we live in the truth of all these promises that, that have been given to us, we, we shy away from making them envious, not in a, not in a bitter way and like poking, but, but in the same way, like when we had the Christmas party, for those of you that weren't there, you start to see like, or when people went to Kenya, you start to see these like inside jokes and you see how much fun they had. And you, there's a part of you that's like, oh, I wish I was there. Like there was so much life. That was there. I wish I could be in on that. What's happening? How can they have all our promises? How can they see our word in a new light? How can they have a joy and a peace in the midst of all this stuff? How can they be living this out in such freedom? There should be an envy that draws the people in, Um, and so we, we can. We can Christians have caused much damage to the Jewish nation, and there's a lot of reservation. And that's equally wrong. But I think we can also sway the opposite way. And we must be careful to love but preach the truth. Yeah. Um, and so he carries on. Um, he said, for God's gifts and his call are, people say irrevocable. That just feels wrong. Is that right? <laughs> I know. I say ir- irrevocable. But all the clever teachers that I listened to said irrevocable, <laughs> which is just weird. Um, but I, I don't want to be judged by anyone. So say, <laughs> say it however you please. Um just as you were at one time disobedient to God just as one just as you were one Oh, it's hard. Just as you were who were one at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy, that's painful, as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. It's a bit of uh, like a, a challenging. Basically, what he's saying is is uh, from your disobedience and and their at their rejection, you were in disobedience. He's opened up a door of mercy to you, and in that mercy, um, and in their disobedience, so they've they've gone out, and the door's been opened. That door's still open for them to come back. And so he's using, his, uh, he's using their rejection to open the door to us. And he's using the mercy shown to us to draw them back into that mercy. He's, he's bound all men over to disobedience. He's, he's um, kind of given us this, this free will to walk and, and choose our own ways. And we choose destruction. We choose disobedience. But he's opened up this door of mercy that all may come back in. Um, and he ends on, on this doxology. He says, Oh, the depth... Of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth and of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's so deep, we can't get to the, the bottom of it. We can't comprehend it. He says, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. If we if we trying to figure out and box God in and figure out all the ways he works, you're not going to get to how unsearchable his judgments and, and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has... Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. For from him, he's the the beginning of all things. And through him, the sustainer of all things. And to him, he's the, the end result. Like all glory goes back to him. It's all wrapped up in him. There's just this this picture of the bigness of God that can take all these questions that we have, and it can just—he's big enough to take that in. He's—he's he's not ashamed. He's unsearchable. We we can't box him in. We can't put him into this box. Um, and so like I said, I've been been wrestling with this. There's 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 practical points in this, but what's what's he really calling us to? What's what's the challenge? From this, Or what's he trying to speak to us? And, and I'm cheating because Romans 12 is definitely the highlight of the Bible. Um, and so I'm, I'm eking into Romans 12 because I think there's, there's a, a very clear clue of, of what he's trying to do. Um, and so he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing. This this worship that we we bring to him. So he he says, um, "I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, not God's election, not God's foreknowledge, not God's um, kind of partnership with us in the gospel. Is all all true? Not not uh, in view of how God's going to work in Israel. Not in view of the remnant that He's got. In view of God's mercy, I believe God. Um, well, I believe Paul." is is taking us on a journey, and his his attempt is is to bring a lot of things to light, but throughout Romans 1 to 8, and then especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I believe he's highlighting God's mercy. I believe he's pointing out God's mercy. Romans 12 and 13, 14, 15, 16 move from here, and, and the Focus shifts completely into our life that we live in Christ, the life that's, that's to come. Practical outworkings. Romans 12 speaks about renewing of our mind and the gifts to the body, and it speaks about letting your love be genuine and, and overcoming evil with good. Romans 13 uh, moves on, it's submission to authorities. Romans 14 on on conscience he's just working out like how how practically we walk out this life but i think there's a recognition that if we don't get the mercy of god If we don't fully comprehend the depth of the mercy of God and we start to move into all the practical things, we can so easily miss it. We can so easily move into works. We can so easily move into trying to make something of our life. And if we don't sit with the depth of the mercy, the the undeserved forgiveness. When um, Romans 9 has this very challenging verse that's actually a quote from earlier in the Bible. It says, um, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And it's just like you're trying to wrap your mind around how God, God, who is love, could hate. And there's all sorts of uh, explanations of like covenant terms and and all of that. But basically, there's a story of uh, Charles Spurgeon where where one of the people, after he's preached on this passage, comes up to him and says, I just can't comprehend how God would hate Esau. Um, And Spurgeon takes a while and then he says, that's not my problem at all. I, I can't comprehend how God would love Jacob. Like when, when our perspective shifts to recognize that we, we've got all these questions and they're big questions and, and it's all that. But when our, when our perspective can change and say, actually, how am I? I don't get how he chooses, but how am I chosen? Like how am I a benefactor of his mercy? Our, our questions just all of a sudden become so much smaller and His mercy becomes so much bigger than we could comprehend. And, and until we get to that place, we can't move on to doing things for God because we'll think we can just earn His favor. We'll, we'll forget all the things that we've just been taught and we'll move on. We'll try to do for God. We'll fall into this trap. We'll become religious. We'll become so obsessed like the people of Israel with being the chosen people that we don't recognize the one that chose us. And and we we can look in Romans ten where, where he chooses by his mercy to partner with us. It says that that how will they hear if no one preaches? Blessed are the feet like of the messenger that God sends, the bearer of this good news, like how merciful it is i don't get why god chooses to partner with us through preaching why why wouldn't he use something else why can't he just bring himself in dreams and visions and he does sometimes but his main method is to partner with humans how merciful yeah. this god that he would choose to do that that he would choose to use me yeah. like it, when you look at, at it, how he's, he's chosen a remnant not by not by works but by grace how how merciful is our god and I think we can we can easily move in move into this next passage. And like I said, honestly, Romans twelve is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible and I think there's so much we can learn from it. But until we can humble ourselves to recognize that it's all by God's mercy, then I think we're gonna completely miss it. And so I think it's God's perfect plan that that we go into a time of uh, kind of just a break break two weeks where we're not going to be having church and we're going to go into a time of just celebrating His birth. But I really feel like God is calling us to contemplate the depth of His mercy. Yeah. That before we get into the practical outworkings of our faith, that we are so grounded in humility, yeah. that we're so grounded in, in just our desperate need for God. Yeah. I think... Uh, how what what mercy of God that he would look at a wretch like me and that he would call me chosen, that he would call me beloved, or that he would look at at just this broken church, this broken body, and that he would say, This is my blameless bride That he would say, This is my bride and he would wage war over us and he would be so jealous for us. And so I just I really feel if we can we can stand up, I mean the band band if you've got more songs, you can come play, but I just wanna spend a bit of time and prayer um yeah father i just father we want to bow down before you we want to just say that you alone are worthy of all our praise you alone are worthy of all our worship father you alone are the high king father we there's nothing we can do to deserve your grace is nothing we can do to deserve your mercy. Your mercy is, by definition, your our, our undeserved forgiveness. And so, Jesus, I pray as we, um, as we still our hearts, as we spend time coming to just uh, a time where we remember your birth, your humility as you came to earth, your your just sacrifice as you came down. I pray would we look. Upon the sacrifice you made. And we would just see your mercy. Father I pray would we never forget your mercy in choosing us. Would we never forget your mercy in calling us your own. Would we never become proud and arrogant. Would we never look on our works. As if we are bringing you something that you have to repay us for. That our service would never be in a spirit of trying to earn your favor. Oh, Father, I pray would we see your mercy. Would we tremble, Father? Would we would we fall on our knees before you in submission, Father? And as, as we just come to this place of offering our lives as a living sacrifice, as our worship before you. I pray, Lord, would we do it from a heart posture. Of just recognizing in view of all you've done before us. In view of all your mercy that you've shown to us, Father. The most natural thing we can do is to give all of ourselves to you. Uh, Amen.